Welcome to the Brain People Podcast, a show where four mental health experts team up to bring you practical tools for overcoming mental health challenges. The Brain People don't replace your doctor or therapist, but we will give you some extra tools to help you on your journey. So join us as we fight mental illness, one episode at a time. Welcome to the Brain People Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Daniel Binus, and I'm a psychiatrist, and I'm joined today by my co-host. Jonathan Edens. I'm, all, I'm a psychiatric PA. All right. Today, we are going to be talking about major depressive disorder, which is uh, something that is very prevalent. We're going to get into some of the stats uh, later on, and we're also going to talk about uh, some of the root causes uh, behind depression and also the definition. And so I think it's going to be a very informative uh, podcast for our listeners. But I wanted to start with a, a quote from an author, Elizabeth Wurzel, and she wrote about depression. That's the thing about depression. A human being can survive almost anything as long as they see the end in sight. But depression is so insidious and it compounds daily, making it impossible to ever see the end. That fog is like a cage without a key. And so I like that quote because I think it does encompass a lot of what people often feel, kind of the sense of, I really need to get out of this. I want to get out of this, but I'm in this fog. I feel stuck. I'm hopeless. I don't know how to get out of it. And I don't know about you, Jonathan, but you know, when you're talking to somebody and you're first uh, meeting them, they're struggling with depression, that can be a really difficult thing. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially for family members uh, that maybe have never dealt with clinical depression, uh, it a lot of times we get this whole like just pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? And if you've never been through it yourself, I think this particular quote can kind of show you just how uh, how confusing you know this this sort of lack of direction, this lack of uh, really nowhere where, where to go, right? Absolutely, and. and I, one thing that that I've thought about is like, you know, with that whole idea of the key and not even not having the key, not knowing where to place it is kind of like what we want to help people understand in their journey of depression is like, okay, you may not have the key, but there are other people that maybe do have at least part of the key or at least can guide you to where to put that key. So there is hope. And I think that's a really important part when we're dealing with depression, right, is coming alongside people, not shaming them, but realizing, okay, we want to work on this together and there is a way out, um, but just don't try to do it all by yourself. Absolutely. So what do you think about depression? I mean, a lot of people think about a real sense of loss too. And, you know, it's not always related to what we might think about as a classic loss, uh, like a death or something like that, but um, it can certainly be related even to a sense of loss of identity or a, a loss of physical health. But at its core, there really is a sense of, of loss and, and even of the mental well-being and peace that maybe I had before. Now, I might even add a couple more in there, but a loss of control right, can be a really big problem for a lot of people uh, or a loss of uh, youth and or innocence. You know, you think about people with sexual trauma, you know, that can cause that can cause significant depression because they feel like something has been taken from them uh, or maybe the loss of a future. Or, and I don't mean that they don't have a future, but their perception of what their future otherwise what, what maybe what they originally thought it would be. And so that is stripped from them by something. And there's that hopelessness that sets in. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I definitely hear that from a lot of my patients is just that, that sense of, like you said, being out of control and not knowing where to turn and, and just feeling lost. So let's talk a little bit about depression. What are we actually talking about when we talk about depression and how do we define that? Is it just, I feel down, I feel depressed today. So then I have major depression. Yeah, there's there's a colloquial use of a lot of different psychiatric disorders, right? And depression um, is maybe one of the most used, right? So when people say, I feel depressed, that doesn't necessarily mean you have clinical depression. And so we'll talk a little bit about kind of what that, uh, what the criteria are in order for people to really meet the criteria in order to get diagnosed with clinical depression. Um, but, you know, just in general, when we're talking about regular depression, it's essentially just persistent low mood that impairs daily function to a significant degree. Yeah. So the interesting thing, and I think one of the key words there is persistent, right? Because we all have our days where we're like, ah, oh, I just, I don't feel so great today. It's not like my, my favorite day. I wish I could have just gone back to bed or maybe I can just skip till, till tomorrow, but that's not clinical major depression, right? It's that persistently low mood that doesn't go away day after day after day. And the second kind of important phrase there is that it impairs daily function. And so, you know, Dr. Bynes, what does that, what does that mean when you're talking about daily functioning? Yeah. I mean, that can mean quite a few, but basically we can't do our basic daily tasks, like go to work, for example, or interact appropriately with our family. Uh, so it can impact us socially or even our activities of daily living, like self-care, you know, taking a shower, um, that sort of thing and, or even cooking food for ourselves. So a lot of, a lot of our patients that we deal with, they, they, they can struggle in one of these domains or, or oftentimes several. So, so major depression is uh, classified as a mood disorder. And so mood disorder is an umbrella term. This includes things, um, in addition to major depressive disorder, such as seasonal affective disorder, where you get depression mainly in, uh, the winters for most people, um, or persistent, uh, depressive disorder or premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which is kind of like a heightened version of PMS, um, bipolar disorder and cyclothymic disorder. So you know, not, we're not going to go into all the different definitions of those, but just to show you, you know, there's a collection of different mood disorders and major depression is just one. So just saying I'm depressed doesn't mean you have major depression because there's far more nuance than that. That's very true. And that's why it's important if someone is dealing with a significantly persistently low mood for quite some time to really get professional help to get a full evaluation instead of just self-diagnosing because mood disorders certainly are on a spectrum. Um, and one, one more point to make is that a major depression is a syndrome. And what we mean by that is uh, a syndrome is essentially a collection of different symptoms, right? So symptoms are the expression, the characteristics associated with uh, the, the disorder. And when you combine many of these things together uh, as a group, right, this can make up the diagnosis. And so one thing we want to emphasize is that because you're depressed, it just doesn't mean that you have major depression, major depressive disorder, as we said just a minute ago. Um, but there's many other symptoms. Many people may not actually feel depressed, um, but they can still meet criteria for major depressive disorder because they check off enough of the other boxes. That's right. And so in order to really figure out if someone meets criteria for major depression, we have to turn to the psychiatric Bible of, of sorts, which is the DSM. And the latest, latest version is the DSM-5. And so, yeah, Jonathan, maybe you could 
talk a little bit about what are those criteria when we're actually looking at diagnosing major depressive disorder according to the DSM-5? So there's nine different criteria and uh, don't fall asleep on me because we're going to go through these. We are going to go through them fairly quickly, but they're all important to know, uh, especially if you feel like you may be dealing with major depression or you have a family member that's dealing with it. Looking out for all of these things is going to be key. Uh, so <clears throat> one thing before we get started on that criteria is just the duration, right? So we kind of talked about persistent depressive mood, right? So typically we, we define an episode as lasting at least two weeks. Mm -hmm. So if it's lasted two weeks, or more. Now that number is somewhat arbitrary, right? But it, it just goes to show that it can't be something that you feel for an afternoon, right? Or maybe it only goes for a day or two with minimal impairment, right? That's not really clinical depression. It doesn't necessarily necessitate treatment because it's not severe enough to. So that's the first thing is just duration. But in terms of the symptoms that people, uh, the patients will tend to present with, so feeling sad, empty, hopeless for most of the day, nearly every day, right? That's the first and um, you know, one of the most important. Now, the second and also one of the most important is having little interest or perceived pleasure in doing things that you would normally enjoy. This is, there's a fancy term for this. It's called anhedonia. So in the diagnose, uh, in, in the diagnostic criteria, you have to have one at least one of those symptoms in mm -hmm. order to meet criteria. So you have to have the the lack of interest or the depression and hopelessness. Yeah. And it's kind of interesting because in symptom number one, even there, it doesn't have to be depression. It can be a sense of emptiness, you know, or sadness. Cause a lot of people are like, well, what is depression? But they might feel empty and they might feel sad. And so that would definitely meet that. So for symptom number three, it's changes in sleep. So this could be either insomnia, not sleeping enough, or hypersomnia, sleeping too much. Symptom number four is feeling fatigued or having decreased energy levels throughout the day. Uh, and that's relative to baseline, right? A lot of people just have low energy. Maybe they have a medical condition or maybe they're not really taking care of their health just sort of in general. And so they have fatigue. But when you're depressed, you know, this is above and beyond what mm -hmm. one might normally feel. Symptom number five is going to be changes in your normal appetite or eating patterns. So this might be maybe you go from eating three times a day and maybe all of a sudden you've got a loss of appetite during certain portions of the day, but then maybe you've got increased appetite at other portions and you kind of are all over the place. Or maybe you're maybe you just have no appetite whatsoever, or maybe you're uh, bearing your feelings in food, right? So it can be uh, it can typically result in either weight gain or weight loss, or there's really drastic fluctuations in in normal eating patterns. Yeah, a lot of my patients, it seems like it's often all over the place where some days it's this and that, and it, it really can wreak havoc on your whole body, really. Absolutely. So symptom number six is going to be the feeling of excessive guilt, shame, or worthless, worthlessness. And this is one of those big ones that really causes the depression to spiral very quickly. You know, when you, when you are feeling these, this way and you're just, you're not very motivated, so you're not getting a lot done. And then you feel guilty because of that. You know, that, that only makes a lot of those symptoms all the more worse. And, and so this is, this is a very important one to address a lot of times with patients. Uh, symptom number seven, the, uh, the decreased ability to concentrate or being abnormally indecisive. So concentration is a, is a big thing in terms of your day, day to day functionality, right? You're, it's going to be very difficult, especially you have like a really technical type job to, to perform at your best. If you can't concentrate, you know, for a lot of people with depression, maybe they have a lot of racing thoughts or maybe their mind's like completely blank, or maybe they just have a lot of like a weightiness and a fog to their mind, right? These things can significantly impact concentration. Oh yeah. And some people, will ruminate a lot where they, you know, those intrusive negative thoughts and actually, you know, that previous symptom you talked about with the inappropriate guilt can really often impair concentration, right? 
So Dr. Minus, would you like to describe symptom number eight for us? Sure. So that, that can be a little tricky to understand sometimes, but basically it, it has to do with either what we call psychomotor agitation or psychomotor retardation. And what we mean by that is a sense of restlessness is the psychomotor agitation where some people that are depressed, they'll actually, it will manifest itself in the, in the body and they feel like they really can't sit still. It's they're agitated and a lot of times they move more than usual and, and they just feel that sense of dis-ease and the other uh, is basically the opposite psychomotor retardation which basically means they're just way more inactive than usual they're not moving as much they're just withdrawn and kind of blankly staring and uh, we can see uh, the case what i would say is a lot of times i've noticed uh, psychomotor agitation tends to take place more with the anxious type depression. And, you know, the psychomotor retardation is more with just that uh, real anhedonic, melancholic, like withdrawn type of depression. And you can have both, right? You can kind of go That's back true. and forth and you can also have them simultaneously in a sense. So, you know, I've, I have a lot of patients that will describe maybe their brain feels very agitated, right? But their body is very slowed down or vice versa, right? So maybe their mind feels like a blank slate, but then their body, they're extremely restless. Mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. so it's, uh, it's, it's not a simple either, or That's it can true. be a little bit more complex. And then how about the, the last symptom of depression? So the last symptom has to do with suicidal thoughts. And, uh, we also could even include in there, there's thoughts that we'd be better off dead basically. Uh, so basically there, and, and there's quite a continuum you know, with suicidal thoughts. And I think that's why it's really important for our listeners to understand that, you know, a lot of people do have suicidal thoughts. That doesn't mean that they're going to go out and actually attempt suicide. Uh, now, we always do take suicidal thoughts very seriously, and we need to explore that if somebody is having suicidal thoughts. But most people tend to have passive thoughts where it just kind of intrudes in their mind. Oh man, you know, this is just too hard. And almost a lot of people to me describe this escape fantasy where they're like, okay, I don't know the way out. So, oh, this is maybe the only way out I can kind of think of. And so they have this, this fantasy of, of maybe being dead or something like that, but they don't really want to kill themselves. They're like, no, I, I, I want to get better, you know, and I, I want to live, but I just, I feel kind of stuck here. And so then that's where that can come in. Now that's quite different in my mind uh, to when someone crosses the line to start thinking about, oh, how would I actually carry that out? You know, and what would the plan be to actually kill myself? And, um, and then maybe even toying with the idea of carrying that plan out, that starts to be very dangerous and we need to uh, really intervene at that point. And if someone actually has a plan, and of course, if they have an intent, especially to carry out that plan, then we really need to consider psychiatric hospitalization. Yeah, and one thing uh, that I that I do like to just assuage the fears of a lot of my patients, they many of them are fearful to admit to me that they have suicidal thoughts because they're they're always kind of anticipating that I might send them to the hospital. That's true. Right? And and even though yes, su passive suicidal thoughts are very serious in general, they don't warrant hospitalization. Right? It's when, as Doctor Binus said you kind of cross that line when it switches over to intent and plan. Uh, and that's where if, if you have a family member that's expressing these types of things, you need to get them help ASAP. Right. Absolutely. And I appreciate what you're saying there because, you know, over my over 10 years now of being out of residency and practicing psychiatry, and I've dealt with hundreds of patients, I think I've only sent maybe like 
for suicidal ideation, maybe only a couple, maybe two or three to the psychiatric hospital. Wow. Yeah, it's it's amazingly low because most people that are working with a psychiatrist and, and if you have a good working relationship, um, you can often create a safety plan, especially by discussing with family and and making sure that they're being monitored for safety, um, increasing the level of care, like for example, maybe to intensive outpatient care or partial hospitalization. So there's a lot of things that can be done to actually avoid inpatient hospitalization. So I agree. I think it's important that people actually talk to their mental health professional about it. If you're having those thoughts, instead of like, oh, I don't want to go to the hospital. No, we need to discuss these things so that we can work through and actually help support the person um, through through the crisis so that they, they can get better. And actually studies actually do show that talking about the suicidal ideation does not increase the likelihood that someone's going to go out and commit suicide because some people think, oh, don't talk about it because that might make them do it. No, that's actually not true. And, and, and in my perspective, I think it actually helps tremendously and it's a relief mm. for patients and people in general to be able to talk about some of these things that they maybe haven't talked about with with other people so that they can work through it and feel like they have a safe place to talk about it and support and everything. Yeah, absolutely. Now, those were the nine uh, those were the nine criteria associated with the diagnosis according to the DSM of major depression. However, there are a number of other symptoms that could also be a part of the clinical picture that may be important. So things like emotional numbness or apathy, uh, a loss of motivation, general irritability, anger outbursts. Now, anger tends to be one of the more common symptoms in men and adolescents. Uh, so, so that's an important one, especially uh, to, to, to be aware of. Now, crying spells, low self-esteem, even a loss of libido could be a sign of depression. Uh, and then also things like self-harm. Uh, so this would be things like cutting, burning, skin picking, hair pulling. These are just other symptoms to, to, to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. And those are all important things to take note of. And I especially appreciate you pointing out, you know, about the irritability with the adolescents and the men. It's just for, especially for, for guys, it's not as acceptable to be sad, you know? And so, so oftentimes feelings of sadness, grief, depression get channeled into irritability, anger, and even for adolescents, um, it, it, they, they often have a sense of like, I don't know what's happening to me. And that just makes them upset. And then they can react and being irritable. And I don't know what's wrong, you know, because like parents might be like, well, what's, what's going on? And they don't know, they don't understand. Yeah. And so that just makes them angry. Sure. So moving on to the next topic, uh, let's talk about prevalence, Dr. Vinus. Yeah. So when we talk about prevalence, uh, the lifetime prevalence of major depression is around 20%. So that means- Can you say what that means? Yeah. So that means about one in five people overall throughout their lifetime will develop major depression at some point in their life. Okay. So that's just, that's uh, them having at least one episode. Right. Right. So, you know, if you've had multiple episodes, it doesn't necessarily change this particular percentage, right? So uh, 20% is, as you said, one in five individuals. Uh, and this is in the United States, that's I right. believe, right? So, yeah. And, and let's talk a little bit about the uh, annual prevalence of uh, major depression. So Jonathan, maybe you can touch on that as far as our adult data. Sure. So uh, this is for 18 and older. This is from the National Institute of Mental Health, which is very reputable uh, research. 
uh, organization. Uh, and this and these stats that we're going to mention are from 2020. So in the United States, they estimated that 21 million uh, individuals had at least one major depressive episode during the year 2020. Now, this represented about 8.4% of all U.S. adults. So actually, that is quite a number, isn't it? When you really think about how many people are struggling with uh, major depression. And in fact, it's it's interesting when you look at the global statistics, depression is actually the number one cause of disability in the whole world. Yeah. You know, you'd think like, oh, maybe it would be um, cardiac disease or uh, diabetes or cancer or something like that. It's actually not. The number one cause of disability, which goes back to, you know, that loss of functioning and ability to really be functioning at a, at a high level in, in your life is actually depression. So there are, they did differentiate between just, um, you know, something that would qualify as a major depressive episode as well as uh, a major depressive episode with severe impairment. And so, you know, that level of severity is, you know, th this level is probably going to be uh, sort of that classic can't get out of bed situation. Right. Um, and this this uh, this impacted six percent of the U.S. adult population. Now, uh, depressive episodes were higher among females in 2020, which has been, you know, that's that's pretty typical. But in this case, it was 10.5 percent compared to males, which was 6.2 percent. And of the adults, they did break each uh, they, they did break down the adults from 18 um, and above into multiple different categories in the highest category. Uh, the highest age range was the 18 to 25s at 17%. Well, let's talk about that for a minute. And actually, in that context, uh, let's talk about adolescents and just a couple stats from the adolescent age range, because it, to me, that's concerning, you know, because yeah. we, we look at the younger age populations like, wow, that's actually quite a drastic difference there in the younger ages compared to, you know, once you get into middle age. So in 2020, uh, it was an estimated that between the ages of 12 to 17, uh, 4.1 4 million adolescents had a major depressive episode. This represented about 17% of the U.S. population. Wow. So, you know, we were talking about adults and overall that was about 8.4% of adults, but with yeah. adolescents, 17% from 12 to 17%. And again, you know, if you look at the um, 18 to 25, uh, that is right about the same, isn't it? About 17%. Sure. And so what we see is from the age of 12 all the way up to 25, about 17% of adoles all adolescents, because that really encompasses the whole adolescent range. And this does, this even breaks down. So if you take 17% and you, and you separate out the women, uh, the, the, the women from the men, or I should say the, the, the girls from the boys, right? Uh, you know, girls were significantly higher. Uh, and overall in the adolescent range, it was 25.2%. So one in four girls uh, between the ages of 12 to 17 had a depressive episode during the year 2020. Wow. Yeah. And it makes me wonder too, if that's really accurate as far as like, I wonder if they're even catching all the, the boys, because again, I think boys, it tends to be more like, irritability and a lot of these boys i think end up in other buckets like whether it's add or um oppositional defiant disorder or whatever but sure but uh, you know any way you look at it the stats are actually very concerning any thoughts about why that age range it has 
such big struggles. I have a lot of thoughts and that would be an entire <laughs> podcast episode by itself, as I'm sure you do. And, and many of our listeners probably probably have some ideas as to what might be contributing. Um, but, you know, one, one thing, you know, COVID lockdowns were not good for a, a, a lot of people in terms of socialization and their mental health, right? Yeah. We saw huge spikes, um, which we'll get into in just a second. Um, but particularly, I think the people that were hit the hardest were adolescents. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when you know, schools being shut down, um, not being able to see their friends, um, you know, not not being able to see people smile, right? Um, the overuse of technology, you know, in households, a lot of these things are really help to facilitate or exacerbate, uh, especially you know, young girls who you know tend to be more community based, if, yeah, if you know what I yeah, mean, yeah. right? They tend they tend to need that socialization uh, more so than your average you know young boy. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. Speaking of COVID. Um, any uh, stats that you can share with us as far as uh, some of the mental health issues that arose there? Yeah, so this this uh, these are global stats, so not just the uh, United States, but this is the entire world. And this study was published by The Lancet. And so they saw, you know, with COVID-19, which to no surprise, there was a stark rise in both depressive and anxiety disorders in 2020. Uh, the overall number of cases of mental health disorders rose dramatically with an additional 53.2 million. Um, and that's up from 193 million. So, so what is that? A, uh, sort of like a 20 to 25% increase, um, over with depressive disorders. And then in anxiety disorders, an additional 76.2 million over about 300 million cases at baseline. So, you know, so that was another significant jump. So kind of between both of them, just because of the pandemic, there was about a 20 to 25% increase overall in, in terms of number number of total cases globally. Absolutely. And, and I really am not at all surprised to hear that, especially there was one survey that they did and this was just a survey and they weren't actually looking at diagnostic criteria for anything. But before COVID, they, they looked at... Uh, basically people that had anxiety and depressive uh, symptoms that were significant. And this was a United States um, household survey, and it was about 11%. And this was shortly before COVID in 2019. Then they looked at it uh, during COVID, and that number actually jumped to 41%. Mm. So basically almost four times uh, the the amount. And, and, you know, we're not seeing four-time jump in diagnoses, but yeah, there was, there's been obviously so many mental health issues that have come out of COVID. So we talked about kind of one, uh, one cause, you know, particularly in adolescence, you know, in terms of the, the lack of socialization as maybe, uh, one of the exacerbating factors of depression, but there's many theories uh, behind what, what may cause depression. So Dr. Barnes, why don't we walk through a few of those and we'll start with like the two most common ones, right? Most what everybody thinks about because it's been really ingrained kind of in our minds over the last number of decades. Uh, and so let's let's work through those. Yeah, yeah. So we're, this is not going to be an exhaustive uh, list of causes uh, because we'd be here all night. But <laughs> uh, but, but basically, uh, we're going to touch on what we believe are some of the most important ones uh, to hone in on. And so uh, the one that most people think about is genetics. Uh, I think most everyone realizes there is a connection. You know, if your parents are depressed, then there's a higher likelihood that you're going to be depressed. Now, but how, how, how higher, I should say, how much of an increased likelihood is there, Dr. Binus? Yeah. You know, it, there, I think there's still some debate on that, but, you know, studies do show it is 
there is a significant uh, increase, maybe even up to 40 to 50% um, higher prevalence. And how do they look at that? Well, they look at that with twin studies, identical twin studies, and they find that, okay, if you have the same genes, um, even if you're separated at birth, um, there is definitely a higher likelihood. So that says two things. One is that there is a high likelihood that if you have a family member with depression, you might get it. But there's also uh, about, you know, in this case with a twin, you know, 50 to 60% chance you may not end up with depression, right? So it also demonstrates that there's a lot of all uh, other factors at play other than just genetics. So what might be some of those other factors? Yeah. And I just want to comment on that. I think that's a very important thing to hone in on because some people really feel like, oh man, I have the the genes and I just can't help but be depressed. And the good news is there are a lot of other modifying factors. And even if the gene for depression has been turned on or the genes, because it's not just one gene, right? Uh, there are things that we can do, the choices we make, even the way we handle stress, uh, exercise or no, nutrition, how's that, that actually help to determine whether those genes are turned on or off. And so, yeah, that really leads us to like, well, what are the other modifying factors here, right? And um, you know, we we talk about the 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 other the other big kind of theory that has kind of been ingrained in people's minds is like, oh, it must be because I don't have enough serotonin or not enough dopamine. And what do we call that? Which hypothesis? The monoamine hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that one? Uh, well, there 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 clearly is some there's there's clearly some evidence behind it, right? And it's been useful to the pharmaceutical companies to have this as the predominating theory because it means that you know depression can be easily fixed by changing up the monoamines, aka the neurotransmitters, aka uh, serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine, right? So, so it's been useful from that standpoint. But if it was the only cause of depression, then these medications would be a lot more effective than they actually are. It would cure a hundred percent, right, or close to it. <laughs> sure, uh, but we don't see that, and so uh, it's far more complex. And uh, you know, just like with most things in medicine, but particularly in psychiatry, psychiatry, uh, most of these things are not very simple. And when, when we tend to oversimplify by, by sticking to say one theory, like we're, we're generally missing the mark. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the, the, the bottom line is our bodies are the most complex thing in the world, right? And our brain is the most complex part of that body. And so to just oversimplify and say, oh, you just need a little more serotonin or don't, it, it doesn't, it's not that simple. And, and yet, you know, of course we keep trying to understand it better, but I think it's a constellation of things. And there's also hypotheses about infl inflammation or even mitochondrial dysfunction, right? And uh, those are important hypotheses to think about is like, okay, can inflammation affect our brain and our overall health and even maybe trigger depression? Yes. What about mitochondrial dysfunction, which mitochondria are the you know, energy storehouses or uh, powerhouses for our cells? Can that affect? Yes, it can potentially, but is that the only thing that will explain? No, usually it's a combination of factors. Uh, so a couple other theories behind what might, you know, cause or at least exacerbate some uh, some depressive symptoms are an individual's uh, you know, life events. So this could be particularly stressful events like traumas. Uh, these can definitely uh, you know, increase the likelihood of having a depressive episode. You know, in, in, in a study that I pulled some, some numbers from, they said 75.6% of chronically depressed patients reported clinically significant histories of childhood trauma. 
Wow. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, it, it's extremely sad, kind of the nature of things, um, but it is an important thing to, to recognize. Absolutely. And it really does show that it's, of course, not just the current stressors that we're facing, which also can contribute, especially if they're major stressors, but it also, those stressors that we've experienced in the past can set the stage uh, for mental illness and physical illness for that matter. And there's a lot of data uh, in recent years that actually uh, shows that. So it's it's not just the the stressors that you experience, but it's also your interpretation of the stressors, right? Very and so true. so the the types of thoughts that you have about the things that you're experiencing or you have experienced, uh, these can create what we call either cognitive distortions. So basically, uh, a distorted reality in your own mind that's not really in line with the the true reality, right? And it can cre- also create kind of this uh, um, this. Uh, I guess, system or series of sort of core beliefs that people can have that can really shape the way that they view themselves and others in the world. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. And uh, I think this was a good start in understanding some of the underlying factors. Again, that, those are, that's not an exhaustive list. There's actually well over 100 causes. But the interesting thing is that you can lump those over 100 causes for depression into 10 broad categories. And we will have another podcast that really addresses that more explicitly. But again, the good news is there are things that we can do to modify a lot of these underlying issues, even our genes. You know, we can't change our genes, but we can change how they're expressed. And like you said, can't go back in time and change if we were maybe abused or something like that, but we can change how we relate to that experience in a healthier way. And that can actually uh, keep us from being stuck in in the past and in the trauma. So um, thank you, Jonathan, for being here and uh, sharing. And thank you to our listeners for listening in. So if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Dr. Daniel Bynus. And I'm Jonathan Edens. And you've been listening to The Brain People Podcast. Thanks for listening. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 